This is Dr. Doug Tooman, author of Ask the Foot Doctor, Hudson Valley Foot Associates in the Hudson Valley, and I am on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. My biggest pet peeve with the foot care industry is all of the -the over-the-counter products that are sold to anyone and everyone, including diabetics, and we see so many diabetics who have complications from over-the-counter medications with salicylic acid preparations and other ingredients that actually harm their feet because in really small letters they say if you have poor circulation you shouldn't use this and senior citizens and people with diabetic and eye disease can't read those little fine print items and they think it can take off their corns and calluses and it ends up causing wounds and ulcers. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. And we're back. I'm Dr. Neil Smoller, holistic yet big mouth pharmacist, here to take you on a journey addressing myths and misinformation in the health and wellness space. Thanks for listening as always, and I hope what we do here gives you some value, some insight to help you along your wellness journey. Subscribe to the podcast, give me a review, rate us, all of that helps. We also have a ton of great content over at woodstockvitamins.com, blogs, rants, all of my prolific ramblings about the supplement industry. Please don't forget to check us out, uh, The Big Mouth Pharmacist, on Facebook and on Twitter. We're at Big Mouth RPH. Today's guest, you're going to get a kick out of, because <laughs> it's the foot doctor. Doug Tuman is a board-certified podiatrist with over 35 years of experience treating patients. He's the co-founder of Hudson Valley Foot Associates, which is right here in my backyard, and he's a frequent guest on NPR's Medical Mondays, and he's published lots of articles for national magazines, newspapers, and even medical publications. Doug is taking his lifelong professional experience to the national stage now. He's the author of Ask the Foot Doctor, a new book that talks about everything foot health related, answering 210 of the most commonly asked foot problems. I'm putting my foot down, though. (laughs) Uh, We don't cover all 210, but in our sole discussion on feet, we get to the bottom (laughs) of the biggest concerns today. We talk with Dr. Tooman, who is also a fellow Woodstocker, about feet, especially the monsters that I call my own. I hope you like silly puns uh, because we are towing the line. (laughs) Uh, I'm just going to keep laughing each time, too, just so you know when to laugh on horrible foot puns today. So enjoy. All right. So we normally just start out with just like a general conversation. So, so Dr. Tuman, why are feet so gross? <laughs> <laughs> feet are the most wonderful things you could ever imagine. Where would we be without them? Without, Where could we go without them? <laughs> I, I just think it's weird because I, I mentioned that we were going to have a foot doctor on the show, and everybody's like, ew, you know, like, why do people think feet are gross? What, what is it about it's that we, we just have this weird. Well, they're either a work of art or considered gross, and I don't want anybody to look at them or touch them. I guess that beauty is in the eye of the toe holder, I guess. The toe holder, hey. uh, Leonardo da Vinci was the first one to recognize the beauty and the complex nature of the foot. It is a complex structure. Yeah. 
For sure. And um, one of the things that I know in my very limited knowledge is that the most important uh, piece of clothing that everyone wears is their shoes because it dictates their foot health generally. So I don't know. I don't even know where to start on this whole process uh, about foot health because it's just such a uh, a broad topic. So I guess we could well, let's start with shoes. Like Shoes uh, is a gr- great place to start. We yeah. put them on every day. Yeah. And that's another one of my pet peeves is that people really don't know what makes a good shoe and what doesn't make a good shoe. Okay. And foot problems aren't always caused by shoes, mm-hmm. but they're often caused by poor shoes. Got it. Yeah. So so what kinds of things are people doing incorrectly when they're shopping and buying shoes? Well, right now we're in the summertime <laughs> and a lot of our patients will be coming in in the summer and the fall complaining of foot pain mm-hmm. because they wear flip-flops. Mm-hmm. Now, there are good sandals. Mm-hmm. We live in the the uh, universe of Birkenstocks in Woodstock, New York. And yes. those are good sandals. And there's 12, 15, 20 other brands that are wonderful, but flip-flops don't fall into that. And people, all of a sudden, it's nice out. They want to shed the shoes and the socks and they put their flip-flops on and there's zero support. Yeah. And they walk all their daily activities in them and they end up hurting their feet. And they get plantar fasciitis and they get arch pain and they get fatiguing legs and feet. And it's just all of a sudden aches and pains in their metatarsal areas and so on and so forth. Really challenging. Right. And do people make that connection on their own or is it something that you have to kind of like slap them in the head with it? Like, will you take the flip flop off their shoe and hit them with it? Like, yeah. <laughs> sheepishly, <laughs> sheepishly, they come in and they say, it was probably my flip flops, but, but I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Or we have to get it out of them. Did mm-hmm. you wear flip flops all summer? And right. then they say, yes, I did. And I I said, that's where your feet hurt. Right. I mean, so there's the shoes. I, I, I don't buy shoes. I have these skater shoes that are probably horrible for me too that I just wear because they're a little dressy, but they're sneakers for the pharmacy here. But, um, you know, the shoes are like two, 300 bucks a pop now. Are those shoes actually superior to the stuff that actually works and are, are good for you? Or, or Unfortunately, they are. <laughs> they are better. Wow. And uh, not all two, $300 shoes are better. I mean, mm-hmm. you can have a women's uh, dress shoe that's uh, Ferragamo or those fancy uh, Louboutins and on and on. And those aren't better for you, not better right. for you and me. Yeah, Big definitely not good for not, me. Uh, we wouldn't be wearing them. And if I always say if, if men had to wear high-heeled shoes, they would have been outlawed a long time ago. For sure. But for women wearing them, it's certainly not good for the foot. And they can be $1,000, those shoes. Yeah. But what makes a good shoe, and I always recommend if somebody's looking for a couple of pairs of shoes for your wardrobe, you should have a pair of running or walking sneakers. Running yes. sneakers are my favorite because they incorporate more shock absorption and cushioning. And they're usually more supportive because they have to take the impact from the runners. Yes. Three to five times your body weight. So they're made better and they're made to last four to 600 miles of running. So really better. Walking shoes are good too. And then also you should have a good pair of sandals in your wardrobe. Okay. You know, a thick-soled sandal. They can be brands like Ufus or Vionics or Birkenstocks or Nayots. But when you hold them in your hand, they shouldn't fold in half. So the test is you hold your your sandal or shoe in your hand. And if you can squeeze them in half, like an accordion test or wring them like a sponge, it's probably not a very supportive shoe for you to wear. Got it. And you don't recommend socks with sandals, right? That's not a good thing. <laughs> it depends thing. how old you are. <laughs> uh, no, no age. Should that be allowed at all? Let's draw a line here, Dr. Tuman. We're not going to do, be doing this. So um, one of the things that I deal with on a, a, a very, very frequent basis in feet is nail fungus. And so I want your take on nail fungus. Tell me all about nail fungus and what we can do. Well, as the book says, that chapter, there's no fun in fungus. So, and, You're uh, a fun guy. You're a <laughs> that <is> a, <laughs> that's what they also say. So, 
you know, the the uh, there's many things to talk about with fungus and fungus toenails. Yeah. Let's get over the easy stuff first. Fungus on the bottom of your feet is called tinea pedis, athlete's foot fungus. Yeah. And that's uh, very common, especially in warmer weather. The feet have, believe it or not, about 250 sweat, 250,000 sweat glands in each foot. Wow. It's a lot of sweat glands, and the average person doesn't realize it, but you sweat up to about a pint a day from each foot. Wow. So it's a lot of sweating in warm weather and everything. That is an environment where fungi can be happy and multiply. Right. So, and they do. And if you have scaly feet where the skin is scaling or itching in the bottom of the feet or between the toes, that might be athlete's foot fungus. But now we get to the one that women come in are absolutely horrified. And that is nail fungus. Yes. Dun, 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 dun. So <laughs> they wait. So if uh, I'm not an athlete, I mean, I've I've drank Gatorade before, but like I can still get athlete's foot, right? That's a Mitch Hedberg joke. I just want you to know that. Yeah, yeah. You can get it more because of the sugar in there. <laughs> yeah, it actually helps breed. Fungus. So so yeah. So nail fungus and yeast. Canada, so <laughs> so nail fungus. Uh, well, stop with my stupid jokes that I was thinking. I about love foot jokes. <laughs> you know, we have lots of. We'll put our best foot forward today, and if yes. we screw up, we'll call a tow truck. All right, a tow truck. <laughs> Bada boom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, so nail fungus is is the big, big problem because it's so... And I really like the sweat glands and the nail fungus and all those kind of like long toenails. That probably goes into why everybody thinks your feet are so gross and, and such. So let's talk about the the toenail fungus. And and so uh, one of the big things is uh, how to treat it. And, and I have some thoughts, but I'd like to hear yours. So Well, let me make one comment first. Let's go backwards for a second because this yes. is a fun podcast a fungi podcast (laughs) you said people think feet are so gross there are actually more websites about foot fetishes than there are about foot health no way yeah maybe you're in the wrong business we could be you know (laughs) and upstairs in the studio who knows what we can do exactly we can (laughs) get we got cameras we got the whole thing exactly Mm -hmm. so anyway foot fungus as far as the toenails that has a medical name called onychomycosis big term Mm -hmm. And basically what that means is that fungus is creeping into your toenail. And the reason I mention women is because it becomes really common in all sexes, all mm-hmm. three of them or four of them nowadays. But anyway. Yeah, lots of them. <laughs> yeah. Lots of them. Mm-hmm. But anyway, but for, for now, mm-hmm. uh, what women have what, in the summertime, people put nail polish on their toes. Yes. And nail polish is actually toxic. Why is it toxic? Because it has these ingredients called formaldehyde and toluene, preservatives and chemicals, and oxygen cannot pass through that. And it's just like paint on the wall. It's paint on your toenail. Mm -hmm. What happens, women leave it on for the summertime or even longer. And then all of a sudden they take it off. And what's happened under the toenail is fungi has been running wild and breeding because of lack of oxygen and the chemicals and the toxins. So they come in, and all of a sudden they see white spots or yellow spots or brown spots, and it's taking over a portion of their nail. And it's often from the nail polish. Not always. There's many causes of toenail fungus, including circulation issues, trauma, heredity. They're all common. But for this time of year, we really concern ourselves with the nail polish. So there are new formulations out nowadays, which most people don't know about, non-toxic varieties of nail polish. We actually have them in our offices. They're online. Hmm. And uh, it's actually an idea I came up with many years ago, but never acted on. But right. a friend of mine who's a podiatrist now is a multi-gazillionaire because of this. Wow, really? We actually took it as far as going to a, should have come to you. And we could, we have, could have done chemist. some marketing stuff. Like, absolutely, could have formulated it. But anyway, there's antifungal agents and there's none, none of the toxins. And I'll always recommend that women 
go into their pedicurist, if that's what they do for their pedicures and polish, and bring their own non-toxic varieties, because not all places have them. Most do not. And then you're safe, at least, yeah. with those nail polishes. But there's many other causes of fungus, and it can, unfortunately, make your nails discolored, thicken, and that's when you get people who really don't like their toenails, and that could lead to discomfort in growing toenails and just challenges wearing the shoes and embarrassment on the beach and the sidewalks and yeah. so on and so on. Yeah, so um, when we would try to help people treat it, the pharmaceutical options were pretty lacking at the time. We used to do compounding, but there's a lot of misinformation around the treatment of it. And you know, there, in my world, there's a lot of people that look for natural options to treat toenail mm -hmm. fungus. And what I've always try to tell people is that there are two obstacles to treating toenail fungus. And you can tell me if I've been doing this wrong my entire career. Um, so one is it's the, the medicine. It's being able to penetrate into the nail bed mm -hmm. and actually kill the, the infections. Mm -hmm. But then the big obstacle is the person because it requires such uh, habitual cleaning and, and treating it it takes a long time to get rid of nail fungus well it actually does if you actually the the best ones on the market for topical antifungals that are prescription if you actually take the insert out and read it it says 48 weeks right. of treatment mm -hmm. and that's every day 48 weeks right doing twice a day once a day twice a day to put it on your toenails and most people aren't compliant like that but even those that are compliant the success rates from the topical antifungal agents are still less than what we would like to see, 20, 30% at best. Right. So, yeah, and like you said, most people don't go to the bathroom every day for 48 weeks. So, you know, exactly and like right. that, you have to do. So, <laughs> right. you know, so like we there's all, no way they're going to like clean their toes and their feet, right? It's mm -hmm. really hard. And then, of course, we put them in shoes that might still be infected with bacteria, viral, fungal agents. And there are even shoe sterilizers out that kill 99.9% .9 of things that may be left in the shoes. But in general, it's really hard to cure fungal toenails with antifungal topical agents, mm -hmm. but there are many remedies. The other thing that's important to realize with fungus is just because the nail is discolored doesn't mean, or thickened, doesn't mean it's a fungus. So when somebody comes into our office, the Hudson Valley Foot Associates, we'll take a sample of that nail and send it off to the pathology lab that specializes in toenails. And uh, poor pathology lab. <laughs> yes, exactly. They, so they get little bottles of shunned in the pathology of, department. Yes, yes. And you the, do toenails, right? <laughs> they, and they do literally thousands of toenail cultures on a regular basis, and more than fifty percent come back as fungus. But surprisingly, thirty, forty percent are not fungus. They're trauma, micro trauma, and they're not able to isolate fungus. And you can treat that forever. It's not going to cure because it's not fungus. So. Even before we initiate treatment, we usually do a nail culture, and then we can do over-the-counter, or we get into other remedies, such as laser treatments, or there are antifungal oral agents, which do have side effects, but they can be used effectively as well. Right, and that's what people need to understand, is that there's tons of different options. The long, slow way is the topical route, and then there are much quicker ways. So let's talk about one thing real quick before we move ahead, is the... Um, the fungus sterilizers in the shoes and stuff like mm -hmm. that, because I didn't even know that that was a thing. Uh, but people forget often that they just keep putting their foot in the same gross shoes, that yeah. they're reinfecting themselves constantly. So what do those things look like? Gross feet and gross, sho gross shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. I'm totally like, trashing <laughs> feet, nearly trying to promote them, and I'm like, oh, just so wonderful and beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I love feet. Anyway, so there, there's a, we actually have them in our office, and uh, people do want them, or they're available online. It's called, one that we use is different models. It's mm -hmm. called a Steri shoe. Okay. S-T-E-R-I shoe, and it's an ultraviolet therapy 
And it's about now 15 minutes. You stick it into a shoe, and of course, it has to be a closed shoe. Yeah. Uh, because the ultraviolet light needs to be in that closed environment so it doesn't bother you. Yeah. Anyway, so it's about 15 minutes, and it will clear out about 99.9% of wow. all the agents. Very simple to do, and it really works well. Do you feel like people should be doing that if they don't have toenail fungus? No. No, no yeah. you don't have to. Yeah. But people do hang on to their shoes too long. That's another challenge that people have. It's like an old comfortable couch, that old comfortable shoe. And I have triplets, <laughs> and our couch, like you could feed the homeless for a, week, a year with the stuff that was in there Cheerios when I threw that out. Oh, my God, goldfish. And right. I found an apple. It was, it was horrible. So the, <laughs> the idea of um, keeping your shoes for too long probably contributes to this problem. So like, what's the average time frame that somebody should keep their shoe? Well, it's probably a lot less than people would like to hear. But in our uh, running community, which I'm a part of, I'm always recommending, so if we just talk about mileage, 400 to 600 miles for a runner. Yikes. So if somebody were to run, let's just say, 25 miles a week, that's 100 miles a month. That's four to six months the shoe is done for a runner. For an average person who's not a runner or a walker, the longest you keep your shoe for walking would be a year. And what I do recommend if you're exercising, only use your exercise shoes for exercising. Okay. And then they'll last you longer, and they're also going to hold up better and support your feet better for when you need them. Yeah. So I always recommend having at least two pairs of good shoes, one pair that you use for exercise and change them at least annually, because people don't realize that even though there's no holes in the shoes or no Cheerios in there or apples (laughs) hidden somewhere in the shoe, there is the fact that the shoe and the bottom of the shoe, it's called the midsole, the part that really affords the shock absorption of the cushion, Mm -hmm. that becomes hardened and it compresses. You lose the shock absorption. And this is really important for everybody to realize, and I I talk about this uh, as much as I can. We're only about the third generation or so of people living in a concrete world, and we're basically guinea pigs, and we're failing this test miserably. Got it. Uh, If you go back to the late 1800s, that's when concrete and cement started to be used all over. Our ancestors, you know, two, three hundred years ago, worked in fields and they didn't work in factories. The Industrial Revolution came along and it changed our lives, but our bodies haven't changed. And now we work 40 plus hours. We stand on our feet as pharmacists or whatever we do. And it's really challenging. And if you look at how many knee replacements and hip replacements and people have foot pain and orthopedic issues, now, of course, we live longer, too, and we weigh more than we used to. All yeah. of these things are contributory to causing a lot of different challenges. So the shoes that we're wearing, you know, yeah, they're supposed to be good, but we take an average person takes four or 5,000 steps a day. Right. And that's just the average person. Some people have their Fitbits on and their <laughs> Apple watches, and their goal is 10,000 steps a day. Yeah. You know, and with that, those shoes wear down. Yeah. We're in concrete, we're in cement. Mm-hmm. You know, that's ungiving, unfor- unyielding surfaces. So, yeah, I think that I might have to change my shoe budget around. So, it is something <laughs> significant that I think people should be, again, like the most important piece of clothes next to a bra. But I don't, I mean, I should be wearing one based on my physique, but <laughs> I don't have. boobs are very attractive. <laughs> Uh, now they are it, like uh, the man's Leonardo- ear. You know the man's ear. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the bro. <laughs> That's the a Seinfeld <laughs> joke for those out there. Well, may or may not. So, um, so to nail healthcare recommendations, the like, what is your go-to like natural product if somebody wants to use it, or would you even say like, don't even bother, just go to a doctor, kind of a thing. As far as toenail fungus? Toenail fungus. Mm -hmm. Well, over-the-counter remedies, and I always say you can start with over-the-counter remedies, and I give a 
great number of examples in the Ask the Foot Doctor book. Yep. Uh, and there's a few I always recommend. One is oil of oregano. Okay. It has an antifungal agent in it, and mm -hmm. that's why it works. Mm -hmm. uh, people use Vicks VapoRub. Wow. That also has an antifungal agent in it as mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. and people say that works. But again, it'll work for the less severe cases. Yeah. And if you're diligent, just like we talked about, and you're willing to do it every day, uh, there are over-the-counter remedies, remedies you can pick up in pharmacies that have clotrimazole in it and things like that that yeah. are effective mm -hmm. to some degree. So. Those are things you can try, and you know. Then there's soaking your feet in different things like vinegar, or diluted bleach, or this or that. So these things are all potentially helpful. And then, of course, if it doesn't work, you know, where you want to come in and get a more accurate diagnosis, we will use some of the prescription type stuff, or yeah. the laser, or the medications. Got it. So um, that actually brings up a couple different points. One, oregano oil. This is a great example of like where we both can help somebody mm -hmm. because oregano oil is a great option because mm -hmm. of the antimicrobial effect. And people will then extrapolate that into my world and say, well, I'm going to take oregano oil internally, mm -hmm. and I'm going to have that same antimicrobial effect. And that's two different things. Mm -hmm. So topical use is very different than trying to absorb something and have it penetrate right. the site of infection. But a lot of people believe that because of that antimicrobial effect. So this is a great example. Yes, oil of oregano, I'm all for it. But you know, if you ask me to take that for your cold, then I'm going to tell you, no, that's not going to work. Right. You know, So I think that's a really good uh, differentiation point. Yep, and your toe's a long way from your tummy when you take those things. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of other parts are going to want it before it gets down to that toenail. Exactly. To concentrate where it'll actually be effective, right. that would be pretty dangerous mm -hmm. for you. So um, so here's a thought. Um, I used to have people, so we would compound a medication. So we would put it in DMSO, which mm -hmm. is a penetration enhancer. Mm -hmm. And that gave better results than the over-the-counters, the prescriptions at the time. Um, but we had a lot of people that were like, my doctor said to, to use like sandpaper and scrub down my nails. What's up with that? I always thought that that's not what you want to do. Isn't your nail made to protect the inside? Well, what you're trying to do with that, just like you're trying to use the DMSO or anything along those lines, you're trying to allow whatever topical agent you're using to be closer to the nail bed and the nail matrix because mm -hmm. we want to make sure that we're getting it down there. So there are some medicines, which I don't necessarily love, but they're the ones that pharma the insurance companies cover, like Penlac or Cyclopyrax. Mm -hmm. And when you use those, it builds up a little, you know, surface level and it keeps getting on so once a week we tell the patients to knock it down with alcohol or something that you can scrub it off so you're getting the medicine close to the nail mm -hmm. that's probably where that came from yeah sandpaper i've never recommended i would hope <laughs> not like do you, don't isn't there like a, a top layer here though that's yes. kind of protective like wouldn't well, you for the nail it depends how thick it is right so if you're treating just a regular nail that's regular size you're not probably going to do that right but if it's thick, then yeah, you want right. to. Right, mine kind of looks like the raptor claw from Jurassic Park, and even taps <laughs> yes. on the counter. Yeah, yes. so so I could use the sandpaper. Call those onychogryphosis, the Howard Hughes toenails. Oh. And believe it or not, there are patients that come in that are homebound or just can't get to them, and they'll actually come into the office. And it's so sad, one or two years where they've never had their nails cut, and they yeah. actually grow over the end, it's called ram's horns nails, or onychogryphosis. Wow. And they're actually growing all the way to the bottom of their foot. Whoa. It's really frightening to look at. And yeah. So how do you walk on that? It, it's incredible. Uh, so let's talk about nail health because right. we're still on that topic. Do you have any recommendations for people about how to keep their nails healthy, like nutritional? Do you, do you get into that or, uh, you know, or is that like there, something there you are, take to me? Yes, <laughs> um, we're, we're flipping them over to you. And, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. you know, there, there are nutri nutrients like biotin that can keep a nail healthy, mm -hmm. but 
Now, there for nail health, it's basically making sure you have enough room in your shoes so you're not cramping your shoes and your shoes, mm-hmm. cramping your toes in your shoes. I always say you want to have room for your toes to wiggle about the cabin. Got so it. So not crunched up in the end because that's going to cause problems. And they should be high enough toe box where you're not pressing down. The other thing is socks make a difference too. People don't realize the socks you put on your feet every day. Yes, they may be clean, but the materials make a difference. Yeah. So there are socks nowadays that wick away moisture from the foot and don't Mm -hmm. allow the moisture to stay close to the surface of the skin. Cotton is not the best material. We grew up thinking cotton is the best material, and it's great for shirts or whatever. Mm -hmm. But for socks, it's actually synthetic materials. And the synthetic materials, if you went to a sporting goods store where the runners buy their sneakers and socks, there's usually some really good socks there that it can be thin layers or multi-layers. doesn't really matter how thick they are, but they're made of materials, and the label says wick-away moisture or cool max or different things like that. So socks make a difference because they're next to your toes all day, next right. to your feet. So mm-hmm. those kinds of things make a difference. And then good hygiene, mm-hmm. you know. But we're born to become our parents. So right. if your parents had really thick disastrous nails, mm-hmm. you're likely to have them later in life. Right. So do the best you can to stave that off. Right. And all those other baggages that your parents gave you, we have psychiatrists right. that come on the podcast for that one. So, yeah. <laughs> so well, I like talking about sweaty feet, um, again, because of the natural product industry. So they have pads that they recommend for people to sweat out the toxins mm-hmm. and they put them in your, your shoes and they, they pull away the bad and mm-hmm. make you a better person. What do you feel about those things? Uh, gimmick or actual something there? Hard to know for sure. I mean, yeah. certainly when you go to these seminars and people put the feet in the water with these things and the water turns brown and yeah. it looks like, oh my God, all this stuff was in my body, but I actually think it's... Parlor tricks. Yeah. A little bit of that. Yes. Yeah. So. I agree. Like everybody's got an axe to grind. They're just trying mm-hmm. to sell something. Like if something's a problem and we can fix it, let's fix it. Mm-hmm. But come on, that's kind of silly. We like all that. have toxins and the best way to eliminate them, get in the sauna every day and mm-hmm. go off for a little run, walk, and sweat, right, and eat good, healthy food. Right, yeah, exactly. You know? Pee, you know, yeah. you know those kinds of things, like yeah. don't have a dead liver. Mm-hmm. Those are all good things. But yeah, I mean, I understand the concept. It's almost the same as the wicking away socks, mm-hmm. where it's just pulling stuff mm-hmm. away, because it is a sweat gland, so you're going to have oil production, mm-hmm. and you're going to have yes. all the... And we do excrete stuff through mm-hmm. our pores, so you know, alcohol being the mm-hmm. one. So, you know. Um, <laughs> I thought I smelled something. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess uh, we can talk about some like uh, pain-related things, fasciitis. We will talk about plasher, oh my God. Plantar fasciitis. Plantar fasciitis. Let's talk about that. So Dana's going to edit me there, but she's going to keep it in. We leave the bloopers in. It's more fun that way. I have a whole reel that won't get me elected president someday. <laughs> so, all right. Um, yeah, so if you want to talk about that, because that's a huge issue, obviously. Well, I think the number one thing that we treat in our office these days, when people come in and they say, what's the most painful condition you treat? And I have to say, it's plantar fasciitis. We feel like there's an epidemic of heel pain in this world. And part of it goes back, Neil, to what we talked about before with the concrete world we live in. Yeah. And all of the other things that contribute to stress on our feet. The foot has 26 bones. Mm-hmm. There's only one heel bone. Mm-hmm. Right? So all of the weight on impact, which is one to one and a half, two times your body weight, every step you take down is coming onto that heel bone because we all walk heel to toe. And on the bottom of the foot, attached to the heel bone, we have the structure called the plantar fascia. Mm-hmm. And it originates in the bottom of the heel bone, right around that area. And underneath that, there's actually four layers of muscles. Going backwards for a second, just so you know all these amazing things in your feet, there's 26 bones, there's 33 joints. 
there's 19 muscles, there's over 100 ligaments. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on inside your foot. Yeah. You know, so lots can go wrong, but on the bottom of the foot, what happens is that there is a, uh, let's just, let me give some symptoms. There's a symptom that is pretty consistent. If somebody has plantar fasciitis, you get up out of bed in the morning and your bottom of your foot hurts, especially by the heel. Maybe extends into the arch a little bit. And maybe it takes 30 seconds a minute or sometimes even longer before that goes away. Mm -hmm. That's the early signs of plantar fasciitis or you're on the couch at night and you get back up. It hurts then. Or maybe during the day you're walking and it hurts a little bit. It gets a little better, it gets a little worse, and all of a sudden it becomes painful all the time. It's on the bottom of the foot. And when people come in, there's many things that cause this. We just mentioned a few, but it's a really painful condition that really damages the ability to perform normal daily activities. If you're an athlete, you can't run anymore. If you're a walker, you can't walk anymore. If you're a construction person, you're in pain all day. Yeah. You know, so all these things, mm -hmm. you know. Are like, you just going through all the village people? Is that what you're right. doing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. So anyway, so it, it's a really challenging problem, and it's very hard to get rid of, on, rid of it on your own. There are many things people can do for it. Mm -hmm. But, and you know, we're busy all day long with people that have tried remedy A to Z, mm -hmm. and they still come in because it's, so painful. Yeah. And so what is the typical treatment like modality for that? How do you fix that? Because you're going to fix your shoes, I would imagine, right? And then all of this yeah. other stuff, but... There's so many things to do. And that's why when you have a pain like this, you really need to have an evaluation. Yeah. And that's important because many things can cause your heel pain. And it can be anything from a heel spur, a bone spur, the plantar fasciitis. You can have a nerve that's impinged underneath your foot. You can have a bone that has a small stress fracture and you can have a bone cyst. So there are so many things that can cause it can come from your back even. So we really want to make sure what you're treating is what needs to be treated. And then we can give remedies, whether they're home care remedies and office remedies, but it's multifactorial on how you treat plantar fasciitis. And it's going to consist of certainly looking at somebody's shoes and inserts, but going beyond that, things have contracted inside somebody's foot. The plantar fascia actually tightens up. So we have to, number one, elongate the calf muscles, elongate the foot muscles. So that's one strategy. Then there's inflammation that's on the bottom of the foot. And we have to reduce the inflammation, whether it be for natural or, or corticosteroid injections or mm -hmm. anti-inflammatories, icing. So there's a myriad of anti-inflammatories that we use. And then, of course, we have to support the foot because a lot of people who have plantar fasciitis have flat feet. They pronate or roll in, or they have high arch feet that are rigid and stiff. And we have to accommodate for those factors that are contributory as well. So it's really, you know, you have to look at everybody as an individual. No two are the same. And then we figure out what to do, and we make everybody better. What's really nice about today, I'm going to share an old story and then sure. get back to today. Yeah. Probably heard of Joe DiMaggio. Uh, yeah, Joe. I'm, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he has a 56 game hitting streak, and uh, the old Yankee Clipper, who had the affair with Marilyn Monroe in the old days. Mm -hmm. Anyway, his career was ruined by a heel spur. Now, in the old days, back then, you know, all they did was take X-rays or whatever, and they would see, aha, your heel hurts, and there's a bone spur in there. And what they would do in the old days is they would do surgery to mm -hmm. fix it because they didn't have good remedies. And they would actually, I know you can't see my hand or my foot, but they would actually make an incision from one side of the heel all the way around to the other side of the heel, flap the whole thing down, mm. and go in and take the heel spur out and close it up. And he was never the same after that surgery. Mm. Very barbaric in terms of today's <laughs> treatments. But they soon realized that, 
Oh, we can get to it another way. We don't have to make this big flap on your They might as well go through the mouth at that point, you know? (laughs) know? So anyway, then they realized down the road, you can do a smaller incision or a medium-sized incision on the side of your heel. Mm -hmm. But what's happened nowadays is we realize that plantar fasciitis and heel spurs go together. And if you clear the plantar fasciitis pain, you never have to touch the heel spur. So heel spur surgery has become sort of rare nowadays. Got it maybe one out of 50 cases of plantar fasciitis, one of 100, will maybe do surgery on. And now what our remedies are, are to get the plantar fasciitis cured. And now we have non-surgical remedies for even the most advanced cases, something called extracorporeal shockwave therapy or radial pulse therapy treatments. And these are treatments that are done in the office non-invasively, which means no incision, and you have a machine that goes up against the foot, and it's not a laser, it's nothing like that, but it will trigger your body's own natural healing capabilities to get rid of the inflammation, get rid of something that your body is not able to do on its own. And that's a wonderful treatment. We've been using it so often with great results. Doesn't cure everybody, but it cures so many patients non-surgically right, without, without cutting them. Yeah, without cutting them, and in many cases, you know, if somebody doesn't want to do a cortisone injection, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful treatment for that as well. So, lots of new remedies. So we've come a long way with yeah. these things, yeah. and yeah, some great. really great treatments for plantar fasciitis. So it's it's really painful, and you don't have to suffer with foot pain. As a matter of fact, nobody should suffer with foot pain. Can't help everybody, but we can help so many things. Right. So let's talk about uh, diabetics. Mm-hmm. I think that's important for people to know. And anybody with that has uh, like circulation type issues. So um, what are the most common things that a diabetic should know about their feet? Because this is technically day one. Like when your blood sugar comes up high, mm-hmm. the doctor should be talking to you about nutrition and foot care. Those are the two. And, eye and care. eyes yeah. and mm-hmm. kidneys and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So your team should have all those people on there. And mm-hmm. uh nutritionist and a dietitian and a mm-hmm. podiatrist and primary care, maybe an endocrinologist, all those people can be part of your team. Mm-hmm. However, what do we need to know about your feet and diabetes? Well, first of all, take a step backwards. That's a little podiatry. Uh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so there are over 100 million Americans that are either diabetic or pre-diabetic nowadays. Mm. And uh, most of the increase in the percentage and numbers of diabetes is type 2 diabetes yeah. which you know we're bringing on you know in America from all of you know McDonald's and mm-hmm. everybody else don't mean to single them out but nonetheless it's just how something. horrible is it that your brand is single is the no go-to for like crappy right. food that makes everybody <laughs> horribly sick and yeah right. that's my brand what's that vitamins I mean, all these <laughs> even you know these they realize that their profits are going down unless they offer some healthier versions because people are becoming more mm-hmm. educated these days. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. we have over 100 million people, and about one out of four or five patients in our office come in as a diabetic these days. So it's a huge part of our practices yeah. as podiatrists. So what anyone needs to know is that it's never too early to have a checkup on your feet whether you're a type one juvenile onset diabetic, so to speak, or if you're a type two, we used to be called adult onset diabetic, you should get your feet checked immediately just for a baseline. Now, what we're looking for and educating our patients on, and one more thing that's important is that it, studies have shown an educated diabetic has a significant less complication rate on their foot issues than an uneducated diabetic, and we call those patients ostriches. 
Ostriches. Because they bury their head in the sand. They don't believe they have diabetes, don't want to treat it. They just go on with natural living. A pill will fix me. Got it. You know, it doesn't work. I don't know if their necks were longer than other people, but yeah. (laughs) Eventually they are. So (laughs) we we also treat patients in the wound center, and we are swamped with wound center patients from diabetic wounds over at the Kingston Hospital. We're there Mm -hmm. two days a week doing nothing but wound care for diabetics. But when patients come in, we are going to immediately palpate their pulses and their feet. So there are two places where you have pulses, one on top of the foot and one behind the ankle. And we're going to always monitor every patient that comes in to make sure their pulses can be easily felt. And your primary care doctor should be doing that too. And if you have great pulses, that's wonderful. If you don't, we have to do further testing to make sure that there's enough blood circulating that you're not at risk. So those are the things that we look at right away. We can tell many things within literally 15 seconds of looking and touching your feet if you have circulation impairment. It doesn't take long with a skilled practitioner to look at your foot and say, you have issues here. So quick testing is very quick. Second thing we're looking at is we're looking at the nerve endings in the feet because there's a real big challenge from something called diabetic neuropathy. There's different kinds of neuropathy and diabetic polyneuropathy is something where you might start to get some tingling or numbness starting in your toes, and it may work through your foot. It can become painful, and then it's diabetic painful neuropathy. Mm -hmm. And that's really life-changing for those patients that suffer from painful neuropathy. So we want to prevent that from happening as well. The best way, of course, to prevent all of this is having your hemoglobin A1C, which is your three-month marker, within normal limits. And if it's elevated and elevated and elevated, every time you're getting a check, you're going to get complications. But we checked neuropathy because... What happens is, Neil, if you or I were, let's say, walking outside and we got a rock in our shoe, mm-hmm. we would say, what's in my shoe? We'd take our shoe off mm-hmm. and we would take the rock out. Yeah. If you're a diabetic with neuropathy, you would not feel that rock in your shoe. To give you a really horrible example, when I was a resident about 35 years ago in Chicago, I worked in the Veterans Administration Hospital. I had one patient come in. It was the middle of winter. It was cold. He slept with his feet in the radiators all night. He had neuropathy. He had burns down to the bones, three burns in the course of the radiator that he slept on, didn't even feel his feet burning right to the bone, came in the next day, and his wounds were right through his feet, both feet. Somebody come in one day, took the shoe off, and the shoehorn was embedded into their foot. So these are advanced examples of neuropathy. I've got one. I worked at the VA, too, and I helped a nurse take a sock off a guy that I was just doing like a pharmacy dork thing, and uh, his toe fell off. His toe fell off with his sock. It was oh my God! Advanced neuropathy yes. and diabetes. I've yeah. seen that. It's really horrible. Poor Dana. Yes. Dana's not me- meant for this. Though. <laughs> <laughs> Our engineer oh, is boring. not holding up well now. Well, <laughs> good thing purple. there's no images and pictures here. It's just conversation. <laughs> so we want to check everybody for neuropathy, and we mm. do that with something called a Sems Weinstein monofilament wire. Mm. It's a little fine wire. It does not hurt, but we tap different areas in the toes and the bottom of the foot and make sure you can respond to that sensation, mm-hmm. vibratory testing and other things that we'll do to ensure that you're not losing sensation. Mm-hmm. And if you are, we take precautions and we do things to make sure your foot's always in a good environment right. and educate the patient about you know not being barefoot, wearing proper shoes. Right. Even Medicare has a program for diabetics and other seniors who are on other insurances where you can get shoes through your podiatrist once a year right. if you're diabetic because they want to protect your feet because... 
One of the highest Medicare costs from diabetics is hospitalizations from diabetic wounds, right? Amputations. Yeah. So, and that's a great program. If people don't know that they can take advantage of it. A lot of people qualify, and mm-hmm. you get these great shoes and a, and a, a follow-up. Yeah. So, it's definitely something to push out there. So, then um, the one of the things you touched on was like how people will use remedies before going to a doctor, not take it seriously, and then there ends up being problems. So, like over-the-counter stuff for for like calluses and such, right? So, tell me more about that and like what people should be cautious of before they start using over-the-counter products for their feet. Right. With any diabetic, and when talking about diabetics, that's the most challenging Mm -hmm. person. Uh, You shouldn't use anything on your feet unless you speak to your primary care physician or your podiatrist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you shouldn't even soak your feet in water because temperature, if you can't feel, you might be in hot water. Yeah. You don't want to get in hot water. You don't, not with your foot doctor. (laughs) Exactly. So there's a lot of things you shouldn't be doing, but any cream you could use, you shouldn't put creams between your toes, but anything with medication that's for corns or calluses or things like that, remedies, you should not use acid plasters and those kinds of things you want to be really careful of. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the main thing you want to make sure you do. Cool. All right. Yeah. And so like as we're wrapping up this conversation, I, I, we like to talk about myths and misinformation in whatever industry that we deal with. So like is there quackery in the podiatry business, in the foot business? Is there <laughs> Foot quacks. Foot qu- yes. <laughs> yes, there's uh... they, Yes, they have the the, the duck feet. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The duck feet exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bada boom. So <laughs> with uh, there's there's so many myths in every profession and yeah. wives tales and myths and so on and so forth. You know, there's um, I can't say this quackery within our profession, mm-hmm. but there are things that the public should know. Okay. And I'll give you some mm-hmm. examples. In the book, Ask the Foot Doctor, there's a chapter on broken toes. Mm-hmm. And most people, when they bang their toe or their foot or whatever, they say, ah, it's just a toe, it'll heal. Mm-hmm. But it often heals improperly. Mm-hmm. So one of the myths is it's just the toe. Don't worry about it. We see so many patients in our office who come in, whether it's a week, a month, or you know, years later, and now one toe is bent mm-hmm. and it's painful and has arthritis in it. And I ask, how'd you do that? And they say, well, I broke my toe, but I never got it checked. And it would have been so simple if when they did that, they came in, got an x-ray and had it just set in the proper position. Very easy to do. It takes two minutes and then bandaged, you know, a little simple toe bandage that'll keep it healed in the right position. An x-ray of a broken toe, we'll see if it's in the joint, which can lead to an arthritic knuckle and joint. So those are things that we, you know, we, we talk about. You know, the other thing that are missed is that, you know, bunion surgeries leave you with painful feet. That mm-hmm. was the old days. Yeah. You know, when our grandmas were around in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, even the 50s. When I went to school in the 80s, in podiatry school, graduated in 83, even all the procedures that were done then, they would be malpractice if you did them today. You know, it's just they're outlawed. They're not, <laughs> there's techniques that are not going to be done that were done years ago. And there were things, whether it was done anywhere, your back, your shoulder, your knee, that aren't done. And people are nervous about a bunion because their grandma. The bunion surgeries nowadays are done with smaller incisions and they're done with internal fixation and quicker back to your feet and activities. So, you know, if you have, you know, our office and Dr. Keller, I call him a bunionologist. He's so good at fixing bunions. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have return to activities and return to shoes and things like that. So don't be afraid of doing things to fix your feet. Yeah, you know? that's the big myth. But you don't have anything like vaccines cause bunions or something like that. <laughs> Nothing like that in your industry. <laughs> don't they? Yeah. I don't think they cause everything. Yeah. But no, it, there, there are a lot of... Um, 
in the, in our profession, just like in any profession, it doesn't matter where you are. There are people that have your philosophies and the people that don't have your philosophies. Yep. And there are there are doctors that are board certified and there are doctors that never took the time to get board certified and there's mm-hmm. you know doctors that treat more naturally and doctors that treat you know everything surgery. So it varies and you want to have a good relationship and you want to go to people that have good you know reputations and have mm-hmm. had good results and have been around a while. Got it. All right, yeah. great. Um, so I've got a I've got a bit of a, a mythy, weird, quacky type thing that we uh, Dana has brought up: copper infused footwear, where they put magic metals in your socks and in your shoes and in your insoles, and that does something magical. Um, do you have any insight on that stuff? Well, there is a little bit of a you know craze, so to speak, about copper stuff in there and, and socks that may have some impregnated copper in them, and mm-hmm. they make the bottom look coppery or mm-hmm. but it's just the material is kind of brown mm-hmm. but there is copper infused in there mm-hmm. and again it's supposed to potentially create a healthier environment less bacteria maybe less sweating or mm-hmm. who knows what yeah. but um it's not something that uh i think Too scientifically sound should, well people do there's a lot of things with socks is magnets that can be incorporated <laughs> into inserts and there's copper that can be incorporated all in electromagnetic fields there's some new things out there so there's a lot of things that i just haven't had the chance to see the scientific studies i don't believe everything has to be scientifically studied if it works for people mm-hmm. and you feel it helps you that's your study you know so yeah. if it works for you and you feel great about it that's wonderful as long as not harming anybody yeah and you're not making claims that's great right and there are certain socks that can do wonderful things and you know, some diabetics come in with copper socks and they think that it helps them, you know, so, and I'm all for it. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super close-minded and I, I like uh, shun everybody when they make bad decisions. So <laughs> now, I try to be open-minded too. And I think that's a really good um, example. We, we talk about that all the time is like anecdotes are true. The placebo effect isn't a condescending thing. It is a real effect. Our brains mm-hmm. are very powerful. So if you get results and you get success, that's great. And again, the claims is the most important thing. Is it ethical for us to recommend something that we know has no scientific right. data? And is it is it smart to make a claim saying that it does something when we have nothing to back that up? Those are the two parts. But for people, they can do what they want and they can decide if it works for them as long as they're Absolutely. not getting hurt. So. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. This is great to have such a, a, a knowledgeable expert that is also media savvy in our backyard. And uh, I think uh, this is fun. And I hope that we can do more conversations that dive a little bit deeper into these these subjects. So uh, thanks for coming on. Great. And if people have questions, mm-hmm. I'd just like to add, you can certainly go to any one of our places where you can ask your own personal questions. Mm-hmm. That would be askthefootdoctor.com. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you put your name, first name and email in, we'll send you out best tips on how to start a walking program, fun foot facts, and even the first chapter of the book. Oh, cool. And then if you go to our Facebook page, we put out something called Foot Facts Friday. It's a little video of me for a minute or two giving you the best foot facts. Wow. And you can communicate with us there. And uh, we are all throughout the Hudson Valley. Started in Kingston in 1986. And we got wonderful practitioners at our offices, six, seven doctors that are all fantastic and they really care about giving you a better quality of your life right and that's the one thing that i'll say being a local practitioner here that that is for sure like hudson valley foot associates and your practice is top notch like it's the go-to so that's yeah yeah, so all right well thanks again thanks for having me thank you dr tuman for a fun discussion around feet the truth is most of us don't pay enough attention to our feet or take foot problems seriously until it's too late we've got to heal our heels people 
That's a good line. That's a, that's a really good line. I think that's the line of the episode right there. Good foot care includes buying quality shoes and a regular grooming process. If we have diseases that could affect our circulation, like we talked about, like diabetes or any of the senses on our feet, we have to be extra cautious of what we buy and use on our feet and address any issues as soon as humanly possible. So this book is great. I can't stress it enough. It's an easy read and an awesome reference for food enthusiasts, you know, like Dr. Tuman or casuals like myself. Uh, again, it's Ask the Foot Doctor by Doug Tuman, and it's everywhere books are sold. But of course, support your independent bookstores. And for more of Dr. Tuman, visit askthefootdoctor.com. And I hope we provided needed soul searching uh, for you today. Until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and be well. 